Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. Here we go. Suprema, su-su-suprema roll call. Suprema, su-su-suprema roll call. Suprema, su-su-suprema roll call. Suprema, su-su-suprema roll call. It's ladies night. Yeah. Let's celebrate. Yeah. Gonna get down on it. Yeah. Oh, wrong James Taylor. Roll call. Suprema, su-su-suprema roll call. Suprema, su-su-suprema roll call. My name is Sugar. Yeah. I'm the engineer. Yeah. And I love great music. Yeah. That's why I'm here. Roll call. Suprema, su-su-suprema roll call. Suprema, su-su-suprema roll call. My name's Boss Bill. Yeah. And I ain't no sucker. Yeah. What are we doing? Yeah. Roll call, brother trucker. Roll call. <laughs> Suprema. Suprema. Roll call. Nice Suprema. Suprema. Roll call. It's Laia. Yeah. And James Taylor. Yeah. I ain't no lame. Yeah. No fire and rain. Suprema. Roll call. Suprema. Suprema. Roll call. I'm James. Yeah. I came up here today. Yeah. I guess I'm here for yeah. good. You know, I, I'm, I'm ready. Roll call. Suprema. We'll take it. Suprema. Suprema. Roll call. Suprema. Roll call. Suprema. Roll call. Suprema. Suprema. Roll call. Suprema. Suprema. Roll call. Nice. All right, we got through that. <laughs> uh, Just barely. <laughs> I know, right? Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we have less than an hour to uh, unravel the complex artistry <laughs> of over 50 years. Uh, that is our guest today and probably one of my favorite singers ever. I'll just say on a, on a personal note to be selfish on the show that has my name in it. Um, James Taylor is... His voice, uh, in my opinion, is probably hands down, uh, I believe, one of the most uh, beautiful, 
soothing, warm sounds that I can recall. Um, it's kind of my trusted blanket. <laughs> you know, it's a favorite uncle, my favorite teacher in school. Um, and yeah, this is coming from a guy who also thinks that HR from Bad Brains is equally as soothing. <laughs> I'm sorry. But I'm uh, going to take it as a compliment. Anyway, yeah, I am. Yeah, James Taylor in HR, man. Um, I'll, I'll be the first to admit that, um, well, one, I'm probably the only media personality um, that doesn't care if that song was about you. <laughs> uh, She's already said that it wasn't about him. Well, I know, I know. Yeah. But uh, you know, mainly, mainly, mainly because I think I pegged it in my head um, with a voice that soothing. I, I'd never bothered to even look under the hood. I don't know if I subconsciously didn't want to look under the hood because it's just like that's my trusted blanket. Um, and in the week and a half of preparation that I decided to search under the James Taylor hood, yikes. Um, <laughs> I was wrong. And, you know, his his newest uh, book, Breakshot, or his audio book, yeah. Breakshot. Um, Audible exclusive. Yes, on Audible exclusive. It's a must read. For, <laughs> for every artist I ever work with, this is literally like, I'm not, I'm not even separating myself. It's probably I needed this too. Um, it it dissects the, the first 21 years of his life, and uh, which is kind of an understatement to say is a rather dark journey um which now really has me to the point where i'm just obsessed with entertainers or comedians or or actors or whoever that managed to ruse me in a way in a way of like ladies and gentlemen james taylor's here <laughs> all right everyone's looking at each other like yeah man it's like we got we've only got an hour we got 51 minutes left <laughs> i hear his voice thank you for coming on the show <laughs> You know, you know the special this is. Zara is here. Yeah, yeah, and it's not even a, a political figure. <laughs> <laughs> Zara, one of my managers, is only here whenever uh, someone's here to discuss politics. So Roman Farrell and Chris Hayes. That's it. That's it, Jay. This is wow. how, especially yeah. you know, if she's in the room watching. All right. <laughs> how how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, you know, it's uh, it's like a. Um, We've got a couple of, of uh, projects that are coming out at the same time and um, a tour uh, starting up in, in April. So, you know, it's a very like a it's a busy season and it's it's kind of a, a promotional season, you know, and uh, where you take your stuff to market. And that's always been, you know, that's always been a, a, a kind of a, a difficult passage for me. Well, you make a project, you know, over a. In this case, it took us a couple of years to make this album, and uh, and then you take it by its little hand and lead it into the marketplace, you know, and and launch it, mm -hmm. and that's that's always a, a sort of a can be a you know a confusing uh, process, but but it's one that I've I've gotten used to, and not only that, it's become much much better as time has gone by. I'm talking to people almost uh, uh, completely who I who uh, I um, admire and and respect and and that makes all the difference, you know. I mean, ba back in the beginning, you'd sort of go to Rolling Stone and hope that some intern who was uh, interviewing you, uh, you know, 
cutting her teeth on on your uh, your project and and reviewing it, mm-hmm. uh, that that could be really uh, uh, just just made it a daunting kind of a process you know, to to get into. But but uh, you know I I've, I've been feeling really good about this this particular project and the people I've met and talked to about it. So. so you're saying that even this late in the game, when you create product, you still go through the the process of its critical reception, its how it fares well with your fan base and whatnot. You a- still have those? Absolutely. Um, you know, it. it's still... A, a part of the work it's it's where you you know music used to happen um well it used to happen in the street and it used to happen in the in the on the farm uh but it used to happen in the church and in the court you know those were or and or in academia somehow you know mm-hmm. and i think that having music uh, exist in a commercial context where it's saleable mm-hmm. um, is is a better choice. That's better than the court or the church, in my opinion. Uh, it's not better than uh, essentially folk music, which is which is sort of free, mm-hmm. but it's definitely a step in the right direction um, uh, to have it to to take it to market in order to get people to hear it. So when you're in your formative years, at least for like your first five or six albums, are you obsessively looking to see? Like, are, do you take a Lester Bangs seriously, or even a, a, a Krista Gal? Or I'm trying to figure out like who was the the pitchfork of his day, like the the critic that or John Landau, John who, Landau, or, or Hillman out out in Los Angeles, or Robert Hillman. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So that that would mean something to you? Absolutely. I mean, just in as much as it it either pushes the the project along and gets it out there for people to hear or it doesn't. That was always the the priority. In fact, I I made such ruinous uh, uh deals and decisions uh, early on um mostly due to bad advice that that I never really saw records as a source of of income. They they never were. So, so I, I always just looked at it as a way to support touring, and also as a way to just get my my thing out there, to get my art out there. You know? Wow, that's weird to hear. Because I thought I was the only artist that was like, yeah, record sales, whatever. Like when we tour, that's how I make my money. And the record store, like the flyer that you advertise, hey, I'm coming to town, that sort of thing. Well, well, it's also the medium that we work in. If you're a recording artist, you. And and I think that's something I've gotten better at over time. I, I, I cringe when I listen to my early stuff, but um, but over time I've gotten better at at recording and and gotten closer to what I hear in my mind when I you know, when I think about a tune. I'm just curious what <laughs> James Taylor album <laughs> makes you cringe. Yeah, I was I was I'm kind of concerned. <laughs> I'm like, oh, please don't let it be one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah, I'm like. Uh, like for you, like what's what's your like? Yeah, what what album that every fan like? Oh my god! Oh my god! And you're just like uh, whatever. Well, the the first one, the James, the one, okay. you the know, Apple record. Yeah, the okay. Apple record. Okay. Yeah. But even then, it's like, if I recall correctly, you've spoken a few times that 
you know, you were creating that right when the the Beatles were creating the White Album, yeah, White Album, correct? So, like, whenever the Beatles weren't at Trident Studio, you were there. That's right. Bill, we were. They let you race the board and just. <laughs> yeah, they did. Uh, I guess uh, there weren't digital cameras in those days, so you 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 couldn't take a picture of it and expect to have it the next day. Right. But, Polaroid, I guess. Yeah. But, but um, uh, no, they, they. I never actually thought about that, man. Did you realize that you were in 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 the eye of probably the most celebrated creative storm in music history? I did. I I was aware of that in a in a sort of. But you know, in those days, I really I lived uh, you know a day at a time, maybe a week at a time. I just didn't. I didn't really expand beyond what was sort of in the room, you know. Um, uh, it all, it, yes, it, it seems surreal to, to uh, have been, you know, a year prior to that, I'd been here in New York and my band had failed and I'd sort of limped back to North Carolina to lick my wounds and, you know, uh, and then lo and behold, a year later, I'm, I'm auditioning for, for uh, Paul McCartney and George Harrison. So it, it was on one le- level, unbelievable, but mm-hmm. but you know, I I just accepted it as as what was happening now. You know, how did even word about you get to to Paul and George? Were you the first artist signed to? Yes, I, Apple. Okay, I was the first artist signed, and and my lucky break was that um, my main partner actually through most of my musical life has been a guitarist from from New York, uh, lives in Los Angeles now, named uh, named Danny Korchmar, Cooch. And uh, Cooch had backed up Peter and Gordon, um, a sort of British invasion group like Chad and Jeremy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had had uh, World Without Love was a song of theirs and uh, uh, Night in Rusty Armor. Um, you know, sort of a, a British novelty duo, you know, okay. ve- very much British invasion sort of mold but um and then the year after that i had been in the band with cooch here in in new york so i called cooch after i got to london i said have you still got a number for peter asher and it turned just thinking that he might have some contacts uh in the music business in london <laughs> and uh as it turned out he had just signed on as head of a and r for this brand new label the that the beatles were starting apple records so he was basically looking for people to sign, and it couldn't have been better timing. It couldn't have been better timing. It was just, you know, it really threaded the needle, and the and the window was very short. For, you know, I was signed. Billy Preston was signed. Um, Mary Hopkin, mm-hmm. um, Modern Jazz Quartet. Um, yep, MJQ. MJQ was uh, yeah. on Apple. Yeah. Apple, really? Yeah. Damn son. Okay. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I didn't realize that. A, a group called Badfinger and, yeah, and yeah. a guy named um, uh, uh, Jackie Lomax. Yeah. But um, the five or six or seven acts that were signed within the 10-month period that a- Apple was actually open to to other people, That's that is to say before Alan Klein came in and just shut it down. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, uh, I'm sure it was hemorrhaging money, but I'm I'm also uh, sure that it was just a, a unique opportunity, you know, to, and they gave me that, that first chance. Wow. So that's, that's how I ended up. Um, I, I got my little demo reel-to-reel tape to, uh, 
uh, Peter Asher. Mm-hmm. He, I played him a number of songs, and, and he said, let's go up and, and see if we can play this for a Beatle. Up, up at, uh, <laughs> for a Beatle. I, I love how casual that just comes right. out, you know? It's like, yeah. yeah, let's just see if a Beatle's here. And, and the way Peter remembers the, the, the day, we, we went up to, I got my guitar in my little cardboard case, and I uh, follow him uh, up to uh, uh, this building in, in, in Baker Street in London where their temporary first offices were. And, and he uh, sort of installs me in a room and says, is there a beetle in the house? You know, <laughs> re- leans out into the hall. <laughs> and, That's amazing. That's amazing. That's good man. And, and I say, oh, no. I say it's as Peter remembers it, because because I myself the whole day is just like yeah, a blur. blur. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I was, I was like made for one ten and plugged into two twenty. You know, I was totally, <laughs> totally, totally shocked. You know. Um. Well, okay. We brought up Peter Asher, who's such a, a at least. I consider. I mean, would would you say that Asher is like one of the the Mount Rushmore figures of what I think of when I think of the California sound, or definitely that? So, how what what is that description? Because if someone that's not familiar with your work, like I don't know how your albums got in my household, but they were there. Because, and it wasn't like, I mean, now they have titles for it, soft rock, yacht rock, or whatever they want to call it, but. Yacht rock, that's good. I know. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, it's it's made this sort of niche, comedic, you know, reference comeback thing, but that's made it cool. Again, like stuff that, again, a Lester Bangs or a Krista Gal, like I'm, I'm better than this type of, whatever, like now it's worship and revered and those things but how did you and peter like figure out this this plan to sort of is it folky is it country is it blues leaning is it you know how would you describe the 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 sound that you two molded that i felt really defined the next 10 years of what pop music would be Mm. The California sound, if you will. Wow. Yeah, um, you know, I, uh, I was I was just playing on the guitar, the songs that I'd written, and counting on a um, a sort of community of players: um, Russ Kunkel on the drums, um, Cooch, uh, a guy named Lee Sklar playing the bass, mm-hmm. uh, Carol King on the on the piano. Mm-hmm. I basically I was was, <laughs> right. but I, but essentially I I was counting on them to be you know to do head arrangements of my guitar arrangements you know yeah. so that you sort of pass it on to another musician usually a keyboard player uh, but basically you write out a, just a simple chord chart and pass it around and uh, count it off you know the strange thing about well actually it's still the case. Uh, that often the time when the song is recorded for for posterity is the first time it's played. You know that's an odd thing that you first don't, take, yeah. yeah, that you don't get to, or or even the seventh take. But the point is, you you haven't had a chance to tour it for twenty performances and sort of, you know, nail it down and refine it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've always thought that would be 
a good way to go. Okay, so the question I have about Sweet Baby James is how do you have an active record deal and you're still homeless? Like, or at least I've heard you mention a few times that for that first album, you were kind of just a nomad, like crashing on couches and how, like, was money just not, available back then or like how did you well enough money was you know uh and i didn't have a place to stay in los angeles so uh, peter had a house at the corner of uh olympic and highland and uh and you know i just would crash there with with uh, at peter's house while while we were recording in sunset sound but i started building a house for myself in in uh I think in 1972, mm-hmm. in the back in the woods on on Martha's Vineyard Island, where my family had had sort of fetched up because my folks had taken me there and the, had taken all of us there in the summertime from North Carolina. My mom was a, um, you know, she she really was culture shocked by moving to North Carolina and and uh, where my dad was worked with the the University of North Carolina. Um, so she wanted to bring us up north every, every, and try to keep our sort of Yankee roots to the extent we could. And, and uh, uh, so my family all gravitated towards that place as being the, the happiest place, you know, and, and we ended, all ended up living there. But uh, your, your question was about being homeless. I, I suppose it, it was sort of rootless, no pun intended. Okay. <laughs> right. Like, not totally broken. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, let me clarify. It wasn't like <laughs> you were sleeping on the street corners like, hey, let's help this guy out. But uh, I don't know. In my mind, I just feel like there's a certain level of comfort that one has to have, at least I think, in order to find their creative space, where I've been in a few situations in which if my personal life is in shambles, that affects my creative output. And so, am I, you know, to hear you hear describe that you were crashing on couches and you didn't have a house, I'm, I'm wondering, like, is the duress of, the stress of, of, of not having roots, pun intended, um, does that affect your creative output or not? You know, I, I never thought about it, but I, I think you're right. If I can think back to any to particular creative periods, it's always been a sort of protected period uh, during the time that I'm that I'm writing, you know. Okay. And I think you're right. I think it does take that. Um, the songs for Sweet Baby James, that that first Warner Brothers album, that the which you you know rightly describe as sort of the uh, the beginning of the California sound. But, you know, um, back to that question for a second. Um, you know, Peter I, and I didn't really uh, discuss the sound. We just, you know, uh, as I said, I, I just introduced the songs to these other players and we played it the way we heard it, you know, and, it, and, and recorded it. it. It really wasn't directed in, in, in any real sense other than just the, the you know, the sort of template, the... the form of my playing it on the guitar would were you somewhat aware of what the marketplace was and how 
somewhat different than the marketplace that you were that this output was presenting itself i'm not saying it was radically radically different but you know i i feel as though you know i definitely uh distanced myself and and identified myself as being apart from music business you know to me music business was still uh dean martin playing at the sands you know in in las vegas well in fact, Dean Martin was a great singer and, right. and, and did some great songs. But at, at the time, we identified that as being another generation. Showbiz, yeah, in being, quote. That's right. Sort of, so you sort wanted of to avoid the Copa. Tinsel, Tinseltown, yeah. Right. I, I swore I'd never play Las Vegas. I, you know, uh, we, I got two Grammys. Uh, I didn't show up. I said, ooh. Oh, even you know. the Grammys was like? Oh, yeah. That's so funny how each artist... Okay, I'm slowly discovering that every clique or people that I would think were the establishment, they have their... Anti-establishment. I'm sort of, yeah, I'm above that. Which is weird because not like I see you as the establishment, but even now you're saying like in your way, like I'm rebelling against that and... and I We very much wanted to, to distance ourselves from it. And I mean, we, uh, that's... That was the sense mm-hmm. in the you know the zeitgeist in the in Los Angeles at the time uh, was was that we belonged to a different generation and uh, you know a, a sort of um, the, the the sort of uh, demographic bulge you know that happened uh, um, after the war that baby boom bulge in the population when it came to college age it it sort of it manifested in a way well, with with FM radio too. It sort of started to and the Beatles and Dylan and you know. I wanted to ask. I'll let you get to your question. No, I wanted I to. I just wanted to say hippies. But, but <laughs> yeah. that's the thing, though. Yeah. But I feel for coming into the seventies, though. What I felt like there was a, a sort of air, at least with like with with Neil Young's uh, after the gold after the Gold Rush, that there was this whole disillusionment with with all the lofty ideas of what the hippies were trying to present in 67 68 and was kind of a more of a cynical thing even though you didn't go that route like was this your response to it like just to be disestablishment like you know i'm I'm a serious singer songwriter i'm not hmm. right no um i that was part of it too. Is that there was nothing serious about it. You know, it was like um, it didn't have any pretensions. You know, wow. was was the was the idea. You know, I mean, yes, I was judgmental of other music, but you know, I realize now that to be judgmental of, of Frank Sinatra because he's he's my parents' generation, you know, is uh, that's absurd. You know, Especially now, yeah. yeah, you know, so. Uh, um, you know, I've I've come around to to understanding that that those uh, I've got an album coming out of a, you know American songbook type tunes arranged for the guitar called uh, called American Standard, which is also the, the name of a toilet manufacturer. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is on the, right there on the bowl. <laughs> I hate, right. hate you for bringing that up. Yep. <laughs> 
Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Schmurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Next to the Beatles, I'll probably say that uh, soul music interpretations of your songs are probably the most interesting. That's really how I got introduced to it. So Isley Brothers, don't let me be lonely tonight. Dog, I was going to say <laughs> my obsession my with Oscar Mayer. I mean, I was three when three plus three came out. Yeah. I thought it was baloney. I thought it was about <laughs> lunch meat. I'm sorry. <laughs> Wait, I can see what? that. At Ronald Isley, the way he enunciates his word, don't let me baloney tonight. <laughs> oh, yes, baloney. I got you. Yes. I, oh, God. Why did I say look, Sarah's judging me? <laughs> no one knows what baloney is anymore, so. 
They don't sell that no more. Yeah, they do. They have plant-based bologna. <laughs> Shut up. The impossible Steve. bologna. Look. James, you eat me? Huh? Wait a minute. No, Sorry, not, just, we're not going to rabbit hole. Yeah, I do. Okay, I just... Okay. Would you not think that he was like... Okay. <laughs> My whole point... Sure. <laughs> My whole point, though, was were you aware at all of how radical the soul music interpretations of your songs were? Like, because... To me, even though, yes, I love your version of Fire and Rain, but the Isley Brothers have this really notorious eight-minute version of the song that almost wound up on every mixtape I've ever given a girl. (laughs) So, and on top of that, are you rather chagrined that for those that don't know the 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 how the song came to be and what it's about and how you wrote it, how almost like Fire and Rain gets or most of your songs get misinterpreted because we just want to see it through our rose colored <laughs> filter. <laughs> this just a smidgen. Thought I see. Oh, this is my shit. <laughs> this is always the second song on every. It's like a minor to major, like a. Yeah. They, they won't even get to the lyrics until four minutes in. Like, right. they just stay here for. <laughs> like five minutes but i was gonna say the are you are you rather chagrined when people take your songs and sort of have it for the wrong meanings like i'm certain that it's been placed in movies in romantic songs you're like no this is about a friend suicide and you know right and drug recovery Yeah, yeah it's it's true um and uh you know, but but it's the emotional impact of the song that really counts, and and I think that that uh, that's why that that song uh, uh, resonated with people because uh, uh, you know, and, and I I think that the line uh, I always thought I'd see you again. Uh, th- I think the Isleys are right. That's basically the sort of the emotional core of it. Like, uh, well, when I've seen it, it's always like. Someone arrives to the train station too late, and the love of their life already like left, or like at the 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 airport moment, <laughs> like <laughs> commercials, TV, yeah, That's yeah, right. and yeah. yeah, those two puppies fight, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, it, it is, it, it's uh, it, it's an emotional package, I think, and uh, and it that's what comes through uh, more than the you know the literal reading of the song i think and and that's but that's the nature of music it, you we don't get to decide about it it's not a cerebral process it it either connects with us or it doesn't and and to a certain extent to talk about it although i talk about it a lot and think about it a lot but but that's sort of you know after the fact i mean the, the music either um you know it, because it's a real thing it's a it's not you know words are all words represent something else, but the only word that is the thing that it represents is the word word. Wow. wow. Damn. 
Words of wisdom. Time to get some from James Taylor. <laughs> That's the show, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Thank you very much. Wow. So, so you know, so so we we put words together to to describe uh, all kinds of things: the, the world, uh, the universe. But but uh, music, um, although it's like a language, we we manipulate it like a language, and we use it for. It definitely has emotional. Uh, I'm not sure if they're culturally. You know, established, or if they're if if everyone in the world hears a minor chord the same way as opposed to a major chord, or you know, mm-hmm. but uh, I I do think that there's a reality to it because it it follows the laws of physics. You know, an octave is twice the the frequency of the octave below it, and and half of the one above it, and 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 that the overtone series is a real thing that exists and so music has its base in an, it's based in in a real truth you know and a, uh, and not one that we have to arrive at a consensus about and that way it, it hits us directly and um and that you know that means that it you know the cliche the universal language but um you know it uh uh, you know that's that's we were talking about people misinterpreting lyrics and and uh, and I I don't think they really do I I think that um, you know the, the way a song hits you is probably w- what it actually has. Do you find the common emotion? Yeah. So do you feel as though your your voice? Okay, now now I'm gonna feel like Chris Farley asking this question. <laughs> your voice is really cool, man. Um, <laughs> but your just just your the, the 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 tone and the sound of your voice, um, is such a warm gift. Mm-hmm. Uh, that could possibly. I mean, I'm certain that you could sing Inner Stamman by by Metallica. <laughs> by Metallica. <laughs> and it would just be the, the best feeling in the world. Um, yeah, how did you... I know the answer is going to be like, well, I've had this voice and it's a gift from God or whatever. People people always say to avert, avoid the question, but how did you develop your voice or what made you sing in a... a I guess your lower register, like it's 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 a rare thing to have that much impact under a tenor. You know, that's a really good point. I've never, you know, you're the first person I've ever uh, spoken to who's who's actually put it that way, and I totally agree. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, t- I totally, I totally agree. You know, the way I look at it is, if if you if you have the guitar as your instrument. You know, to sing down in the same range as the guitar itself is like, it's muddy, you know. It's, you, you really wish you could get above it, but I just don't have that, that range. I can't get above a, you know, literally above an F, you know. like. And what was the story that I read about that you injured your voice because you were singing too harshly years and years ago? How does, what does singing too harshly sound like? Not, let's not or in previous... Them. Let's not make him, you know. I don't want him to sing. I don't want him to sing harshly. Okay, I'm just okay. asking, no. like, what? Yeah, no, it's, uh, uh, it's. It, I was just singing in a club, uh, you know, uh, six days a week, uh, five shows a night, um, over a, a loud band without any monitors, and mm-hmm. and uh, eventually I just I got a, you know, you you get little 
blisters, I guess. As you... So what did you learn as a, as a singer, in a way, to learn how to take care of your voice that you didn't do in the past? It took a long time. And now I find that as I get older, you know, you, you use it or you lose it. So I, I, I exercise my voice every day. That's uh, Tony Bennett told me that. Yeah. So you do warm-ups? Yeah. I, well, actually... Like of the Seth Riggs variety? Like... Right. Yeah, um, I do. And, uh, but they're not warm-ups. They're actually like a workout. Uh, it's, a, it's an hour-long process, and I, I do it every day. Really? Yeah. Okay, so I guess, yeah, if you're working, this, that's your working out it's in the like gym. like a trumpet player and, and you know, his chops, his, his embouchure and, and his, you know, you've got to keep it going. Or uh, So, okay, can I ask what your daily workout is? Like, what time do you wake up in the morning and do you set time to create, like, at 6 a.m. when everyone's asleep? Do you write at 3 in the morning when everyone's asleep or? I... I guess it's just uh, that entertainer's hours. I don't know what what's it like for you. When do you wake up? When do you wake up in the day? Uh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> that was first Steve. of all. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking it. <laughs> okay, as of this speaking, as, as as of this talking, I'm in a relationship with someone who absolutely insists I sleep eight to ten hours every night. So he used to sleep three hours a night. Yeah. Right. I used to be one of those people that was very proud to, you know, whatever. Sleep, sleep is for death. Right. That's right. I was one of those people, right. but, you know, I I had to get out that situation. No, sleep is the best thing that ever happened in my life, which I'm, like, kind of mad I missed out on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that said, I like, at least preliminary, I I'm used to creating late at night. Yeah. So I'll say that a lot of my practice um, was kind of a, a, I'll say that 80% of my career was somewhere between 7 p.m. and 11 a.m. Wow. Which Quincy Jones has a, has a, a weird theory about what he calls what the alpha, the alpha state, the alpha state. So Quincy Jones would purposely uh, have his uh, uh, his his uh, musicians come in around six p.m. He feed them a lot of food, give them a lot of wine, and they fall asleep in the break room. Then he wait around midnight, one a.m., and wake them up one by one to start playing their parts. the 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 short version is because when you're tired, you can't argue with Quincy Jones. Is like, all right, we're play. Mm-hmm. But you're not you're not overthinking the part. Yeah. You're he's like when you're tired, you actually give a better performance. Yeah. Which which is mainly to, to go back to your first take thing. A lot of times, I Steve uh, has been like my longtime engineer for like twenty years. A lot of times, I don't want to know when the tape is rolling because usually when it's like, all right, let's just run it down real quick and then we'll record it for Like the best performance is always when you're not aware, you're not hyper aware yeah. that it's that. That so, the meter's running and you're saying, oh, man, just just 16 bars to go, you know, can I, you know, that, right. that's when you're, terrible. Yeah, so a lot of the times I'm reading something. I can, I, I can now play effort, effortlessly without thinking you know and people see me 
few times, check my phone or eat cereal or <laughs> while I'm playing. That's how effortless I am as a musician. But I mean, for you, like, if you get an idea, do you keep always keep a device on you to? Yeah, yeah. I I sort of have to to trap those song ideas. Sometimes it'll come when you're driving the car. Sometimes it'll come when you're you know just uh, often when you're sitting down and just practicing a little. Start playing a little figure a little wheel and then uh, you you get the thought of a melody and a little scrap of lyric and you you have to put that down so that you know and sometimes you'll be lucky and that thing will like be half the song you know you'll get and then you you know come back to it and write a bridge or but I've always assumed it was because um, I had to be ready to be on the stand at at uh, eight o'clock at night between eight and eleven is when I was performing and then it takes me about three hours to to uh you know calm down enough to go to sleep so uh and often i'm on the bus going to the next town you know so um i i i just drifted into this thing where i was falling asleep at two o'clock you know and and just yeah and and i'm sleeping till till 10 you know do you have performance anxiety yeah i do to this day yes i do what does that mean for you what does that so it's not a thing where, yeah, okay, hi guys, I seem fine. Like, not, you still have anxiety? You know, it calms down after a week on the road, but that first night, I'll definitely, I've I've gotten a little bit more efficient at dealing with it. You know, I don't feel it until about half an hour before I go on, but it's sort of packaged in that time, but I definitely. Must you be alone to do your, like, how do what? A half hour before showtime, what are you doing? That's right. Um, you know, I put in contact lenses because I, I, if I have my glasses in the in the stage lights, it's like it's hard to read, uh, and hard to read the set oh, list. Oh, teleprompter. Yeah, you know, so. Okay. Um, and uh, um, but I, I don't use a teleprompter. I I still remember the lyrics, but. Um, You're is, better man than I don't know what an artist. Once you get past like sixty songs, then something's gonna you're gonna forget the second verse to something. Yeah, so. that's right, and and that does happen sometimes. You you'll get to the what what more typically happens is you you'll get to the end of the second chorus and you say, wait a minute, was that the first or the second chorus I just finished? And you don't know which, <laughs> and you're not sure which one it is. Are we going into the bridge or are we going into the next verse? May you know, I suggest so. to you pulling what they call a Bobby Brown. Y'all sing it. <laughs> sing that shit, y'all. I'm Steve. You know. I'm sorry. Um, okay. Well, actually, I, I'm curious about something. So, for the the two songs that I got introduced to you in real time as a five year old in first grade. Now I'm realizing that um is it the the one man dog album? Woo. All right. So Misty. all the songs are what I would call when when I refer to the end a a, a series or or vignettes of of short f- shorter songs. It's like a, a, a s- Beatles the end that's how I refer to it right. or sweet. Yeah, it's like a um it is. They're they're compressed. There's not a, a one of them that's longer than a minute, and and right. and they're they're all they all lead into each other. Yeah, but it's really great for kids because one of the first song 
All right, the second song I've ever had to perform in second grade was Chili Dog. <laughs> right. Miss Lewin made us all learn Chili Dog. Oh, no kidding. Oh, hell yeah, dude. Oh, like, bless bless I'm not, heart. Bless I'm not heart. <laughs> blowing smoke up your ass, yo. No, no. Like, <laughs> but, yeah, with what was, what was the reasoning for the way you structured that album? You know, um, I realized that I had all of these short pieces, and uh, I I just found a way to put them all together, like Little David Play on Your Harp. That's like, you know, I, I had a dog I lost, uh, and I and I really shouldn't have had a dog, and I felt bad about it. You know, I, I was traveling too much to have a dog. And, Uh-oh. and uh, you know, so. This is why I don't have a dog, Sarah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's true. Poor guy. Before we move on, though, yeah, go back. I, no, I encourage every listener to check out One Man Dog. I feel like it's overlooked, uh, underrated, and nobody really mentions it uh, often enough. So, One Man Dog. You're right, Steve. Right. I'm adding it right now. Yeah. Why? Okay. So. I don't know why. I feel like I, again, my history of embracing the wrong, al- the wrong albums in everyone's canon. I know about One Man Dog because Miss Lewin would play that in second grade and you know they're short songs they're easy to learn but why wh- what were your at the time you're on Warner correct I was on Warner at that point so yeah. what's Mo Austin and those guys saying as uh, far as like right. yeah it's, we it's, need a single yeah, well they uh, Don't Let Me Be Lonely Tonight was a single from that that album right. and it and it it did well enough to, and it also is covered more than any of my other songs. So, um, uh, it you know it was a uh, um, uh, the thing that was a problem is that uh, if you look at the album and count each one of those little songs, uh, um, uh, you know, little David, uh, Chili Dog, uh, Jig, uh, you know, all of those various little scraps, um, they wouldn't pay for individual songs. You know, they they're not going to pay publishing on an album that's got 22 songs on it. So, right. Yeah. Oh, the rule so we is had still to 12 make, or something. That's right. It was a rule of 10, I think. Yikes. And if you do a cover of someone else's song, they're definitely getting paid if, you know, you're the one who has to has to eat eat the cost. Yeah. I see. So they just certain songs you get publishing on and certain songs just you don't on that, on that record. If you're if your contract says that an album uh, shall constitute uh, ten songs, and the the record company will you know will only pay for that, you know, publishing on that many songs. If you want to put extras on, it has to come out of your piece. Um, if if you wrote the song, it's that that's an obvious choice. But if if someone else wrote it, then uh, um, and if you do cover another person's song, you're going to have to pay them. Someone will. I mean, they, that's, that's not, you can't contract yourself out of somebody else's rights. So, um, Any inspiring musicians, just rewind that and listen yeah, to that one more time. Again and again. <laughs> yeah. Didn't read Donald Passman's book. Yeah. <laughs> Question. Hmm. Okay. So uh, true. <laughs> if, uh, I'm afraid to ask this question. The, I guess the myth of, what you would call, again, the do you call it the Canyon Ranch or 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 just not the Canyon Ranch? Uh, there's there's a specific title for it, the California Laurel Canyon. Laurel, the, well, the clique of right the, of Joni, you, 
like, was there an actual, were you guys interacting with each other in the way that it was kind of the myth of it, of the stories or how we see it in our heads? Like, oh, okay, yeah, I could, you probably hung with, Lin, you know, Linda, poker at Linda Ronstadt's house on Thursdays. <laughs> or right. Well, you know, <laughs> Pete, Peter, uh, Peter managed and produced both, uh, both myself and uh, and Linda. So, yeah. so yeah, I saw a lot of Linda, and I sang on a number of her records. Carol and I were sort of in a band together and and toured together for for a long time. Well, Carol, Carol King. 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 Carol so you King. knew her even back in the Brill days, or no? I didn't know her when she was here in town. Although Cooch says that she came down to the Night Owl Cafe and and met us when we were the house band down there. Okay, our our. Ill, ill-fated flying machine days yeah but um <laughs> stop saying that <laughs> does he even is, well is he aware of the breakbeat or in flying machine i don't know i didn't even know there was one yeah oh there's a bonafide uh diamond oh oh you about to tell on somebody don't, <laughs> yeah, do don't tell don't, anybody don't, don't tell anybody <laughs> <laughs> there's a well-known breakbeat on <laughs> flying machine record oh. i was like that's part of the that's part of the hip-hop diet but good go right ahead. Well, I digress. But, I, I but, take the bet. Uh, <laughs> no, and I, I think I... Oh, uh, so yeah, uh, Linda and I had that connection. Okay. Uh, and Carol King and I had that... Linda runs that. And Carol King and I had a connection. Joni and I were, were together for a, for a year. We, we, we traveled together. We lived together. I stayed at her place in, mm-hmm. in Laurel Canyon. Uh, and and we, we also uh, performed on each other's records. She's the background vocals on on you've got a friend and uh long ago and far away uh she's you know uh and on a later song of mine called you are my only one mm-hmm. um that was Joni and uh, Don Henley singing but at any rate Joni was also very uh, personally involved with with uh, Crosby Stills and Nash mm-hmm. Uh, Jackson Brown uh, worked with Cooch, with Danny Korchmar in the section, which was my band made that running on empty album for him. So there, there was a sense of a, of a, a group, a, a sort of community of musicians, and it, it centered around the Troubadour Cafe, which, was, um, which is a, a, a dive in, in, uh, in L.A. That's where Donny Hathaway recorded his uh, live album. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where is that? Was it his version of You Got a Friend was made of the Troubadour. Um, he skipped over the part where he where he played on blue. <laughs> oh, that too. Just throwing that in there. Steve's <laughs> <laughs> It's Joni Mitchell's album yeah. Blue for people who fantastic don't. fucking album Blue. Yeah, it is. It is great, Joni. So, uh, why is Walking Man the one album that um, at mm, about to say? What well, I'm supposed to say, Asher Roth. Uh, Peter, why he didn't produce it? Why did you go with Dave Spinoza? It was the first album he didn't produce. Well, you know, I had made uh, already my first four albums with Peter, and I I really wanted to, uh, to, well, for one thing, I wanted to record in New York Mm because I I never lived in Los Angeles. I I always lived uh, East Coast, and uh, I would stay out there with with Peter uh, or... At another, you know, place. But I did three albums: uh, one with Spinoza, and then two with uh, with Warner Brothers staff producers uh, Lenny Warrenker and uh, and Russ Teitelman. And 
and those guys who also you said that so casually, like <laughs> those are gods. Mm. Oh, wait, they were just staff members. Well, they they were staff members uh, at Warner Brothers, and uh, never. I'm one second year old now that I'm realizing <laughs> that, that all the good stuff, all the stuff they produced was on Warner, which explains why the sound was so consistent. Why. All those things were made at Amigo Studios right there in Burbank. It never occurred to me that, like, oh, that they were staff producers. And, I mean, I came after an era where labels didn't have producers on standby to take all the artists in. Like, people just chose on their own who they wanted to work with. But that explains why Rust, okay, all the all the stuff's engineered the same and has the consistent sound and yeah a guy named Lee Hirschberg was the was the staff you know that was the the record company studio so it, it was sort of like uh if you were making a, a movie on the on the Warner Brothers lot it right. was uh, it was the musical equivalent of that so we'd go to um uh I made two albums uh, Gorilla and In the Pocket In the Pocket one of my favorites yes um of that record those were those were good days. I felt as though I had sort of negotiated the process of being public, of going public. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt I felt stable in my marriage, and uh, I felt healthy and well. And I and it was just like you show up at the studio, you do your work for a day, you go home. You know, it was very work a day. It was very a stable place to work. The you know the basically working for Warner Brothers, making these two albums. And um, I, I really, I, th- I think th- I w- that was a very good period for me. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense for a record label to have staff engineers to have a continuity to their sound. I mean, I think that's a little, sort of a lost thing now with labels where there, yeah. there's just no. I came after that era, so yeah. Because I'm thinking of CTI and things and jazz labels, and where it's just sort of like, you know, you always have the same engineers and the same producers, and it's the same studios. And it's um, it's branding. Yeah, yeah. Labels used to do a better job of, of branding and having their own studio. And, and also, like the music was made live. You know, it wasn't uh, all a process of put down an idea with a, a keyboard and a drum machine, get a vocal on it, and then start making the rounds of uh, of people to overdub on it. Which is which is a great way to record, but but it it doesn't uh, give you the same sound. You know, of of uh, if you have a room, you're miking the room, you're miking the players, and and they're actually, you know, like uh, that Stan Getz album, uh, Girl from Ipanema's on it. Uh, um, but at any rate, that's a three-day process. I think Round Midnight, probably also a three or four days, you know, very, very live albums, and, uh, and, and that's, a, that's a rarity. All right, y'all, you know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. 
I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It just hit me, Steve, that one of our most heated debates ever about music is over her town, too. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, is, is what? Ex- exactly. We always have this debate. All right. So, oh, 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 oh. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. He was... Yeah, you explain, Steve, because <laughs> yeah. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, I don't. It's, it's, see, it's a long I'm story. I'm afraid to so. ask. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. I'm scared, no, Well, too. He, he, knows, he knows what he heard on the radio. No, dude. Like, I live, Dorn and my dad, like, Dorn and my dad had all pop and soft rock covered. So there's at least eight of his records in my house, right? Not in real time. Not like, oh, I'm in the supermarket. Oh, that's James Taylor. That's James Taylor. My whole point was that we were going, <laughs> this, this is 10 years ago, where we're just nerding out on James Taylor classics. And in my top five is Her Town 2. Which it was on Dad's uh, work. Dad likes his work. Dad loves his work. Dad loves, yeah. right, loves right, right, right. Yeah. That was out when I was like 10. It's my sister's favorite record. So Excellent. I'm telling him, like, Her Town 2, and it just, and I was so angry with him <laughs> for like a week. And I played it for him. I'm like, you remember this? <laughs> no. I'm like, yeah. And, you know, I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> different, different. All right. Well, I actually have a very similar story because this this yes. album right here from from '85. That's why I'm here. My sister had the cassette and brought it on some family vacation, and that's why I know this one back to front, and maybe don't know you know a different one back to front. 
but it's it's the older sister story, basically. That, that, yes, both of our older sisters mm-hmm. put that, James Taylor. That in our that lives. song was a was a uh, it was a real collaboration, and um, you know I, uh, I I wrote it with a guy named uh, John David Souther, mm-hmm. Wadi Wachtel, and Cooch. I think we were all in the room. We were all you know staying up way too late. There might have been some substances involved. We uh, we. We ended up Wait, uh, with hell? this. <laughs> he played. I don't mean to interrupt you. Hmm. Yeah. He um he came with Stevie Nicks. Yeah. Wait, Wait you're trying to tell me the guy that Body freaking did the intro to Edge of Seventeen? He co-wrote this song. Yes, he he did. Waddy was 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 in the room. <laughs> and I get to ask him this question. <laughs> I wish everybody could see your face right now. <laughs> Yo. <laughs> Actually, w- we should look it up and and make sure he. Yeah, I'll look I, it up. That's I'll look how it up. I, I'm remembering it. But no, it, I'm looking right now. It, yeah, yeah. Does it say yeah. Wachtel? Yes. Yeah. Oh, great, great. <laughs> James is like, I'm right here. <laughs> I'm sorry. When 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 Stevie came on the uh, the Tonight Show to do Edge of Seventeen, he came with her. And we've been nerding out on him for at least three to four hours. He, he is. That's a, that's an, another. You know, there's so many of these really important musical figures mm-hmm. who figure at, at least as deeply as the the person at you know who fronts the band, but you know who like the the you know the the wrecking crew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, like the uh, uh, you know that that the Motown. Uh, House the band, Funk brothers, yeah. yeah. You know, they, all of all of these these people uh, who uh, TSOP, right? Yeah, yeah. MFSB, MFSB. You know. That's what I meant. Yes. How did you choose these musicians? You know, it the for the first album, the the Apple album. I just ran ads in the music papers in London. There were two. There was one called New Musical Express, mm-hmm. and another one called Melody Maker. Mm-hmm. And we just went to the want ads and and advertised for a keyboard player and a bass player. And um, uh, my friend Joel O'Brien came over f- to play drums, um, but but ultimately uh, uh, it was like uh, uh, in it, by the time we got to California, I had, I hooked up with Cooch again, mm-hmm. and Cooch had been working with Carol, okay. so that gave us that basic just two guitars and uh, and 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 Carol's piano and. And we had a number of bass players, but eventually uh, we we settled on Lee Sklar. Um, there was a guy named Bobby West who played on Fire and Rain. He he played uh, uh, upright bass, you know, acoustic bass, and mm-hmm. and he he bowed it too for for one verse, I think. Anyway, we know Sklar too, you know, Sasudio Sklar. Oh crap! Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, he's. Wow. Yeah, Lee's Lee's uh, um, also a um, you know one of these uh, deep sources of music, and and I I think there are, there are uh, musical cultures like in in uh, Japan and and in Europe and Germany, where where people follow who these uh, session players are and, yeah. and understand their value. But we, you know, and and particularly back when when music was being made live. Uh, uh, in the studio, uh, you know th- these these players were were, you know, Linda Ronstadt uh, depended on a guy named Andrew Gold as as her sort of musical director, and Andrew, you know, is is a big part of that sound that that she 
she had. And I, I know you know what I'm talking about, of course. No, well, yeah, even hip-hop heads, when we collect records, first thing we do is look at the credits. Ah, that I not played on it? Yeah, I'll buy this record. Yeah. Like, so -so see Bobby that. Hall playing per percussion yeah. on, on, on your albums was an instant. Whoa, I know that name. Bill Withers and yada yada yada. Woo, woo. We're we're okay. So I asked enough, of course. Go ahead, Steve. <laughs> no, I just was speaking about uh, collaborations and uh, things. Our listeners might not know that you um, on albums you've appeared on, like um, just things I wanted to bring up. Steve Winwood's "Back in the High Life" again, <laughs> singing background vocals on that song. And uh, on that, the that was that was cut. a rust. Mm -hmm. That was a rust. Title rust Titleman, yeah, uh, produced that particular track. Yeah, yeah and um, I mentioned you played on Blue. You should really talk about that more. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is it true you played banjo on Old Man Neil Young? Yes, that's right. Yeah, and Linda and I sang on that too. It was a session in in Nashville back when Nashville was, uh, um, you know, in an earlier generation of Nashville, which I. I really didn't, you know, identify with. I, I just, the country music at the, at that time seemed like another country to me. You know, <laughs> it did. It seemed like, and I was I was raised in the South, so I I had a sense of what the line was. You know, what the dividing line was. You know, that kind of Christian gun rack, uh, a cowboy hat thing. You know, that that line. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> We're still living it. Yeah, no, yes, that's right. Oh, you noticed that, did you, James? Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Oh, how about news that? Flash, news flash. I'm glad you noticed him, James. Is that the only uh is that the only banjo you've you've recorded? That's right. It it was a six string banjo and it, it so you played it like a guitar and it just, you know, was stretched across that membrane that that a banjo has and made that sound, but yeah. There's one more uh, collaboration yeah. that I don't, I don't think a lot of people know about. There's a song on an Art Garfunkel album, uh, cover of Sam Cooke's uh, What a Wonderful World. Yes, that, that's uh, right. Paul, Paul Simon and, and Art and, and I, yeah. Yeah, and everybody takes a verse. It's really cool. Oh. Yeah, we, we wrote an extra verse to it, too. Mm -hmm. Don't know much about the Middle Ages, looked at the pictures and turned the pages. Don't know nothing about no rise and fall. Don't know nothing about nothing at all. And that, that was an extra verse that we snuck into it so that all three of us got a verse. Yeah, everybody should check that out. It's really pretty. We will. I just got stuck on deciding it. I have a real quick question. Can you confirm something that I've always thought in my head? Um, on In the Pocket, there's a song that you did with Stevie Wonder. <clears throat> Don't be sad because your son is down. Did Stevie come up with that title? Yes. Okay. I, I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> What's your theory? I, it just, it just, it, it just sounds Stevie. like Stevie. <laughs> you know, it sounds like a Stevie sentence. What What Stevie gave me was this uh, this thing that goes like a. Be sad cause your son is down 
Anyway, that's as much as... Don't stop, don't stop. Teaser. You ruined it, James Taylor. Yeah. James, the, the tear was just about to go over the terrace. James Taylor, give it. James Taylor, take it away. <laughs> no, but the, 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 the thing is that he gave me those chord changes, mm-hmm. and he gave me, but on the piano, and he gave me uh, uh, the title, Don't Be Sad Because Your Son Is Down, and he said, you know, take that and... Uh, so I, I take that song and shove it. Yeah. <laughs> Is this happening? <laughs> no. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you. I haven't thought of that song in in many a year but we 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 did it live one year and it was really it was great but you know to to be able to work with stevie was you know it it was one of those things he he sent it over and and called me up and and uh said you know give it a try and and uh you you know i'll take the publishing on this one you take the publishing on the next one and we we haven't got to the next one yet whatever oh he said i as in him okay got you (laughs) Stevie owes you one. <laughs> I know. We gotta go. Yo, uh, yeah, I just, I just had a light bulb of a moment. Um, ah, damn. He wants to flip some shit. There's, I know. You're like, I gotta go. I gotta flip some shit right now. <laughs> no, it's just, okay. I have one last question, then I gotta let you go. Okay. I do want to talk about Traffic Jam. <laughs> yeah. But I also want to ask him, why was it necessary for the book to come out right now? The, the, What's more important? The All right, book. I'll ask you about... The, yes, yes. You can ask him off the air about traffic jam. Yeah. Yes, I'll ask you off the air. Okay. I mean, that was some pioneering ass shit. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You were damn near some, rapping. Yeah, and, he, was, he was rapping on that you song. You were rapping in 1977. <sighs> okay. Why did you feel it was necessary to share... Thank you for sharing your story. Yes, yes. Why did you feel it was necessary to, at this stage in your life, to share that story. Audible came to me and, and suggested, uh, th- sort of through my management, um, suggested that I do a project of some sort. And yes. initially the idea was to take five songs of mine, uh, play them, and talk about them, you know, just sort of elaborate on them. And, you know, to the extent that it would take up however many songs were necessary for a, uh, that chunk of work, which is 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. But when I started talking to Bill Flanagan about um, uh, getting a script together, uh, he said, you know, why don't we just uh, uh, take a certain, that, that portion of your life that, that predates your being public before every, you know, and, and why don't you just tell that story? So um, it, we sort of backed into it a little bit. Uh, and, it's a hell of a story. But why, why, we, um, why we decided... Uh, um, uh, just now, um, you know, it, it, I, I took the fall off cause I've, I've got kids who are seniors in, in high school and they're going to that, through that college, uh, um, you know, admissions thing. And I, I wanted to not be on the road for that. I wanted to be around. So, um, uh, I just had the time to do it, you know? Thank you. Yeah. That it was necessary. I appreciate that. Amir, thank you. Thank you. Um, Wow. This is one for the ages. Yeah. Zara, any last words? (laughs) 
Well, on behalf of teams, uh, did you, you did? But did you? You had a question about fire and rain. You were thinking of asking. Or, no, no, I, no. I had a question about uh, traffic jam. Oh, okay. Which, what made you even think to approach the song like that? Because you know that's essentially hip hop. You know, it was very. The four or five was that bad that day. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, I. You know, it was written right there in the studio, um, right in 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 the amount of time really that it took to to sing the song it was freestyling okay it was freestyle and and russ kunkel um uh took a a a foot pedal and a box you know like and a box filled with uh, packing peanuts and uh and he attached the foot pedal to the box and played the top of it you know with brushes so it wasn't even a drum it was like a, a, a you know and Russ, Making instruments up on the spot. Yes, that's Ru- hip hop. That, Ru- yeah. Russ, Russ was uh, was you know he he he's a very funky player. He's he's a great player, and and um, uh, you know we just uh, basically uh, put it together and then harmonized the uh, the only melody in the song is in the chorus. Damn this traffic jam! How I hate to be late. Right. It hurts my motor to go so slow. Damn that this traffic jam! By the time I get home, my sup will be cold. Damn this traffic jam, and and we so uh, you know it just uh, it just came out and it was a very L.A. thing because you know if you lived in Los Angeles you just lived in that traffic all the time, and uh, well just because it came out in '77 I was like well hip hop didn't exist yet I didn't know if it was like post Woody Guthrie folky talky thing right but... talking blues like uh, Bob Dylan's talking blues right but yeah I, I, I okay. You answered it, and I appreciate that. All right, we got to go, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Wait, we... white people invented rapping. Just want to let everybody <laughs> know that. Up, Steve. <laughs> Just letting everyone know. No, man, on behalf of uh, Boss Bill and Sugar Steve and Laia and Sorry Fonte, you missed one for the record. Uh, I'm Babe Bill and uh, even Zara. Am I missing somebody? Oh, James Taylor. And Julian. <laughs> and yeah, Julian. Julian. Of course, you're, you're family now. Um, Thank you very much. Uh, this, this has been is, great, man. Thank you so thank much you, for, thank you, thank for you. Thank you. inviting me in. Well, this is uh, our episode of Plus Love Supreme. Woo, amazing. I'll, I don't even know how to sign off on my own television show. Television show? Yo. Exactly. He that's messed how- up. Yo. <laughs> Yo. <laughs> no, I'm y'all. We'll see you on the next show on Plus Love Supreme. All right, bye-bye. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots. 
the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.